You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello, this is Wonder Cupboard, as the nice man just told you. Uh, my name is Ian. My name is Eleanor. And uh, what are we going to be talking about this week, Eleanor? Well, we're going to talk about viruses, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, I'm saying that because we are on lockdown right now. We certainly are. <laughs> um, this is for uh, for future reference, um, because if you listen to this episode as soon as it comes out, you are probably on lockdown too. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah. We're recording this um, in our bedroom, as we have done on, on many occasions, not all occasions. <laughs> So that much isn't different, but the difference is after this, we can't go out for a nice stroll in the park. Well, we can go for a stroll in the park, but not only to the pub. not to the pub, not to a restaurant. No. We can't go and browse Southwest London's many delightful shops. <laughs> um, and everything's a bit strange, uh, which is not going to be any news to most people listening, unless they're listening in 20 years' time. Yeah. We would like to reassure everyone, though, that we are not going to talk about that virus. <laughs> it's this... topical, but not that topical. Exactly. And also, would like to provide a COVID-19 free... Oh, I said it. Um, zone <laughs> for all of you out there. So this is going to be about viruses, but it's going to be about a question about viruses that... If you're at a microbiology conference and you're a bit bored and you want to start a fight, just ask this question. It's a very common scenario. Yeah. You know, you know when you're in a microbiology uh, conference and you're a bit bored. And you're a bit bored and you want to start a fight. You got a bit, you know, had a bit too much of the complimentary wine. Are you saying that uh, Oh, are you saying that was just just me then? <laughs> um Oops. <laughs> anyway, what I, I I did not do in that situation at all. And next on the conference schedule, it's Eleanor Bruiser Falco <laughs> back again. Hopefully not for a repeat of last year's performance. So a question that I definitely, definitely did not ask and will never ask again is, are viruses alive? Look what you've done. Ah, the conference is divided into two factions. No three, no six. Um, it's just two, so that's easy. Mm. It's like um, it's like a Shakespearean showdown, you know. All right, nice. So it's a difficult question because viruses are quite an odd entity. So, you know, while bacteria are clearly alive and no one is discussing that, Viruses are, are these kind of intriguing outsiders, these kind of little microbiological mavericks um, <laughs> that inhabit it, the interstitial spaces uh, between um, between life forms. And so, depending on what you think being alive means, then you're going to be inclined to think that viruses are alive or that they're not. Okay. So, in order to answer the question, are viruses alive, we need to ask, answer the question, what does being alive mean? Oh, that sounds even more complicated. We're getting into thorny philosophical ground here, because what we're looking for is not the dictionary definition. 
we are looking for a way to work out what something in the world is, and that might be eventually reflected on the dictionary definition, not the other way around. So, for instance, take the question, is Pluto a planet? Uh, which has plagued astronomy and pop culture for a few years. What do astronomers do when they have to decide whether Pluto is a planet? They don't look up the meaning of Pluto on the dictionary. No, because then they'd say Pluto is an animated dog. <laughs> um, yeah, I hadn't considered that. Um, thank you. Yeah, so they don't ask Mr. Merriam and Mr. Webster or Miss Merriam Webster or Max Merriam and Max Webster. I don't know. I don't know how many people are involved there. Anyway, they don't look at the dictionary first. They decide collectively what is meant by planet. And then they go, oh, there's a, an astronomical body there that we have been called like um, a cartoon uh, dog. <laughs> is that a planet or not? And then if the definition applies, they, that, you know, Pluto is a planet or not or whatever. And, you know, ideally they achieve consensus. And Mariam and Webster and their friends note it down in the little book of words. Um, or, you know, maybe they can distinguish between a folk meaning of planet that is used in everyday language. And then they go, OK, but as scientists, we use it slightly differently and this is how we use it. And, and that's also fine. So the same goes for life. Life, in the way we're talking about it today, we're talking about it as a concept. And as a scientific and philosophical community, we try and work out what entities it applies to and how to fruitfully define it. For instance, one of the reasons why it would be good to know what is alive and what is not is aliens. If we find life outside of Earth, ideally we'd like to recognize it. So we need a definition of life. Incidentally, NASA has a definition of life. From your tone, I can tell you're not happy with it. I am already. not happy. <laughs> I'm not happy with so much about it. <laughs> But we'll discuss it later because okay. we needed to kind of set the ground for my annoyances okay. today. Okay. okay, so what we're looking to define is something philosophers called a natural kind. So that is a category that is inherent in the natural world. Okay? Like bees. <laughs> um, like insects. Okay. Uh, bees are not, are not a category, they are an entity. One way you can do this is by finding one feature of life and then when presented with an organism, ask yourself, does it have this feature? If so, it's a life. If not, it's not. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. Let's have a look at what this feature of life might be. So, Ian, my pupil <laughs> and husband, do what would you guess is a feature of life. What does a, a living organism that you know is living have? It has to it has to move of its own accord. Plants don't move. Well, they do. They 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 move towards the sun. Okay, so they have to grow. Uh I that is I mean that what that's not what I meant, but what <laughs> you suggested there is a better thing and so I'm going to say yes, that is what I meant. <laughs> okay. Um, what else? The flowers move towards the sun, like, in the day. They'll go, think, whoop, 
yeah, they they need to. That's true. They do. Yes, that's that's true. <laughs> I, th- yeah. Okay. Now we can move on. <laughs> um, I mean, we've already had, I've already suggested growing. Yes. This is a really great one. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else. Okay, I'm going to... I mean, I'm trying to think... Basically, every time I think of something, I think, oh, plants don't do that. And every time I think of something <laughs> for plants, I go, oh, well, animals don't do that. So I'm rubbish at this, basically. <laughs> well, one thing that plants and animals both do is um, creating other... Well, generating other plants and animals, right? Uh, yeah. So reproduction is one mm. of them. Uh, the ability to evolve in a Darwinian fashion is one of them. Um, the kind of moving slash growing thing, people normally talk about it in terms of metabolism. So it's the ability of an organism to self-sustain. So to to turn nourishment into energy and to grow and everything. So that's basically when an entity is in a state of equilibrium that has to be maintained continuously, otherwise the entity would decay, aka die. Okay. Other traits that sometimes are used are holism, which is not as new agey as it sounds. It means that if an organism is living, then you can't separate it into parts and still call it living. So the parts themselves are not living on their own. Mortality. You know, if it can die, it was probably alive before. That's kind of mm-hmm. definition there. There is some kind of system that carries information as to how the organism would function. So a genetic code, for instance, like DNA, that tells you how you go, uh, you know, how that flower is gonna move. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's gonna move. Or that it's a bee. Yeah. All the all the flower parties out there. Yes. <laughs> I wanna believe that happens now. <laughs> You're feeding me falsehoods and uh and I want them to happen and that's just gonna make me unhappy. What do you think would be the most party flower of all the flowers? <laughs> uh I mean I'm not a botanist, I'm just a dancer. <laughs> Okay, and the last one, the last feature that we could think about is autonomy. So the organism has a certain level of autonomy from the rest of the world, is able to self-regulate and, you know, have its own metabolism perform biological functions of its own. So you can take these features one by one and go, okay, so does it has that, is it alive? But... A problem with this is that oftentimes you find exceptions. So, for instance, if you think about the ability to reproduce, well, mules can't reproduce, can they? No. Sterile insects, well, by definition, can't reproduce, mm. but they are still alive, right? I mean, one thing that I'm thinking about is that at this point you could say, okay, um, naturally produced organisms that are alive can reproduce because like mules are artificial they're a human made hybrid uh, sterile insects are made in laboratories so basically if we find a problem with this it's our own fault mm. kind of put ourselves in this so as a consequence also the ability to evolve in a Darwinian fashion 
has the same shortcomings as the ability to reproduce because if an animal can't reproduce then there is no evolution there the metabolism thing well the metabolism thing is interesting because technically candles have a metabolism okay yeah (laughs) right and crystals grow Mm. and you know some people would tell you the crystals are alive they're the same people that would tell you that uh, you vibe with some of them, but you vibe a bit, a bit less with others. Mm. Um, not saying they're wrong, just saying not not in the scientific mainstream. Mm. They're not really even in the side stream. <laughs> they're in a paddling pool somewhere <laughs> off to the left. <laughs> but paddling pools are great, you know? Oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with yeah. it. Mm. So how do we get out of this pickle? One thing we could do is compile lists of features that point towards life. You can do them as a checklist. And that's what NASA does, for instance. Okay. So they have something called life's working definition. So it's the definition of life that they use in their everyday dealings with aliens. (laughs) And it says that the living thing needs to be self-sustaining and able to evolve in a Darwinian way. Now, I'm going to level with you all. This would be the point where I do some analysis and I explain you what it means and how it's applied and all that. Except I won't. And that is because researching this bit was sucking life out of me. (laughs) But I'm going to talk about my research because I think it's interesting and it tells you in which direction to look. So I'm going to go, okay, this is what these people are doing. Let's not. Okay. Okay. Also, it's really funny. Uh, what I, found, I mean, I found it funny. I don't know. Um, so I only managed to look at two sources before just burning Google Scholar. Okay. <laughs> um, source number one. Actually, more like like a pop source. I looked at NASA's Astrobiology magazine. Okay. Right? It's nice. an official publication. Yeah. It's not peer-reviewed. Isn't it? uh, I wish, I guess, it's called Space Rocks. I, I, I wish. Uh. No, it's just called Astrobiology magazine. Uh, it's a shame. Yeah. So that's, that's one point that they're losing mm. right there. Okay, so there's this article in which they talk about the definition... First, they make some observations on the fact that using certain criteria for life, crystals would count as alive, and that's odd. And then they go, yeah, but they don't have a nervous system, so that's not a problem. Who said that things that don't have nervous systems are not alive? Like, that, they just plucked it out of nowhere. It's not in the definition. It's not... Because there are things on planet Earth that we definitely think are alive that don't have nervous systems. Yeah. Plants. Yeah. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> so that's one thing that I already uh, that kind of started to itch me. Um, so then they interview scientists on this. You know, so far it's been just writers that do their job more or less well. And so I'm like, okay, nice. Let's see what they say. Except all they had to say was like, um, well, uh, definitions are tricky, in it. <laughs> Now, I'm quoting from a biologist that was interviewed there. Not to shame them, like, people have their own areas of expertise, but just, you know, to do what I was saying before, like, to work out what it is that we're looking for here. Mm -hmm. So they say, this is a complex question. 
Language is vague and all terms face borderline cases. Is an unmarried 12-year-old boy a bachelor? How about an 18-year-old? How many hairs does it take to turn a bald man into a man who is not bald? 20 or 100 or 1,000 hairs? The fact that there are borderline cases that we can't come up with a precise cutoff doesn't mean that there isn't a difference between a bachelor and a married man, or a bald man and a man who is not bald. These difficulties don't represent profound difficulties. They merely represent the fact that language has a certain degree of flexibility. So I don't think that entities like viruses provide very interesting challenges to definitions of life. Oh. (laughs) They took us on a journey here. Yeah. Yeah. So just to tidy up this whole thing, they were referencing a problem in philosophy which is legitimate, okay, and has been looked at. So definitions are indeed tricky, and the examples they use have indeed been used by philosophers to stimulate debate on this. Not to just, like, throw their hands in the air and go, oh, well, we'll never know who's bald, really, so I don't know what else I have to say about life. (laughs) And actually, as we'll see later on, there are ways of thinking about definitions that are a bit more sophisticated than this. So just to take these examples to explain something, the, the when is a man bald question has been addressed by something called Bayesian logic along the lines of there are degrees of boldness. Um, A truth can be on a spectrum going from not bold to balding to almost entirely bold to bald. And as we said, this is not about language. If we insist on categorizing the natural world, we need to do it in a way that makes sense. Even if we decide that categories are not intrinsic in the natural world and there are no natural kinds, you know, that the world is a soup of stuff We only use definition to make sense of it. Those definitions still have to follow some kind of rationale, right? Mm. So we can think, for instance, that they are about making decisions. I don't know. You decide you only date bald men. So you have to work out a way to decide who's bald and who's not, let's say. Perhaps exactly where you put the percentage of hair that makes a man undateable will be tricky. And there will be men that are just on the fence, But broadly speaking, you know what you're doing, right? You're deciding that, I don't know, over 20% uh, of hair, they're they're just not having you. (laughs) They're not getting in your pants. And, you know, if if someone has 19%, then you might go, I don't know. And so you might have a secondary criteria. Yeah, you go, well, you know, they own a cat. Exactly. So he's date material. Let's reply. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Or they own a cat, so no, you know. Mm. So yeah, so there is a criterion there, right? You don't just... So, okay, so this was the level of discussion in this article, right? Hence, I turned to peer-reviewed literature, the gold standard of science, Mm -hmm. and found an article by an astrobiologist... Was the astrobiologist bald? Just let's just get that out of the way first of all. Yeah, well, he might have been. Uh, okay, I'm just saying it might might have bearing. <laughs> I think I think we need to work out whether he has a cat. Yeah. Mm. Was this literature hair reviewed <laughs> by a selection of people with various lengths and styles of hair? 
<laughs> I think it should have been. Good, good. Yeah. You can't rule out for the moment that it's not a, a, a biasing factor. I mean, you can probably guess that most peer review is made by people with very short hair. Yes. And on the straight side. Mm. <laughs> Just saying. It's a work in progress. It's a work in progress, yeah. So, this astrobiologist claimed to have done, in many quotes, anthropology, which in his account came down to asking around. (laughs) (laughs) So, he asked his colleagues what they thought was alive and what wasn't. So, basically, there's like a survey, but poorly made because your sample is just your mates. Mm. Uh, That's not anthropology. Like, no, anthropologists have methods and they think a lot about what they do. I don't know, I'm I'm feeling weird having to say this, but, you know, maybe not everyone is on board with this. And secondly, you know, each of those colleagues probably had different needs and interests and gave opinions based on their own experience, right? Which is interesting. You know, it gives you an idea of how a certain community, maybe if done well, how a certain community thinks about life, but it doesn't tell you anything about the concept of life. It's it's a different thing. And and to be fair, the author does kind of recognize that and decides to turn to philosophy for answers. And so it's like, yay. So you might think he looked up some literature on the philosophy of biology, right? Or at least he phoned up philosopher of biology. Maybe he had a mate that was a philosopher mm. of biology. No. I'm quoting here. He asked his local philosopher. <laughs> so, like, went down the hallway, or...? I don't know! This person is not even, like... The, the name is not there. There's this long quote. And I haven't been able to work out who that is. <laughs> I just haven't. So, yeah, like, my thinking is, maybe there's just one philosopher in that department for whatever reason, and, you know, everyone goes up to them with their stupid questions and they're just really bored and fed up and they just go, I don't know, something about bald men and and, and that's and that's what happens. It might be just the guy behind the bar at the, <laughs> at the university bar who's got a theory on everything. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so like you know I don't even know how to <laughs> speechless. <laughs> I'm it, just for the benefit of the listener, Eleanor is speechless. <laughs> this is a very rare occurrence. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, after all this, he concludes that philosophy is useless on this matter. Yeah, 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 fair enough. I mean, fair? Hmm. I can <laughs> so, recommend a good ale. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, sorry, everyone, I gave up at this point because <laughs> my soul was crushed. And they have a mental health to take care of. <laughs> um, you have the internet. Go look up something. If you find something interesting about the NASA's definition of life, let us know. We have a Twitter where we are WonderCovered. Yeah, so on Twitter, we're at WonderCovered. That one. On Instagram, we're at WonderCovered Podcast. Come and find us. We post photos. We tweet things. Say hello. Let us know what NASA's definition of life is, because we haven't been able to work it out. <laughs> And neither is NASA, <laughs> by the sounds of it. No. I think they're just winging it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so do join us on social media. Uh, and while you're looking at our various channels and public face of the podcast, why not 
go on to iTunes and subscribe and leave us a review of no less than five stars. <laughs> um, is it a positive review? If it's uh, at what number does it become a positive review? Oh man! Um, you know, is, is this review a bald man or not? Uh, I'm trying to do something. Anyway, if you rate us and you subscribe, it helps us uh, get the word out about this podcast, and that helps us to make more. So, if you're enjoying it, please do that, and we'd be very, very thankful. So, let's go back to people who actually thought about this. <laughs> For instance. <laughs> Okay, so we were saying that you can use the list of properties and you can check them off one by one, right? Uh, this can prove tricky if, say, an organism is missing just one property, but roughly speaking, it fits the bill. And so that's when we can bring in even more nuanced work. For instance, you can decide that some of these features are necessary, but not sufficient. So your organism needs to have the necessary ones, but perhaps just one or two of the others. So, for instance, while a mule can't reproduce, it can die and has a metabolism. If you decide that metabolism is necessary but not sufficient, you can go, does it eat? Yes. Okay. But in order for it to be alive, it needs another one of these other properties. So, for instance, can it reproduce? No, but it can die. So it's alive. So if, if being able to reproduce and being able to die are, let's say, in the other properties, then you can just have them as an add-on to corroborate your case that a mule is alive. Mm. It's a bit like the quizzes in teen magazines. It's like, you know, if you answered mostly A's, if you got over 100 points, yes, you're alive. <laughs> if you got 80 to 100, mm. <laughs> <laughs> But does my crush like me? <laughs> Don't know, but he's alive. <laughs> Yay. Um, so, yeah, another way you can do this is you can invoke something called family resemblance, which is a concept borrowed from uh, Wittgenstein. Um, it works exactly like in families it's what it sounds like you notice that some people might be genetically related because maybe Paul and Ian have the same ears Gemma has different ears from both of them but has hair similar to Ian's or something like that um, so there is a network of similarities that puts all these people in the same gene pool more or less even though there isn't one single feature that they all share it's just this kind of cloud of similarities right um, and you can do that with any entity if they share a certain amount of properties with other entities, you can say that they're all somewhat related, right? So going back to life, a good way to poke at definitions and see if they work is to look at limiting cases. So that is cases that just about make it into a category or that don't quite make it. So your 19% uh, bald man with a cat would be a limiting case mm -hmm. of a bald man, right? And that kind of helps you tell where the boundaries of a category are. Viruses are a limiting case, right? But there are other limiting cases which may not be strictly necessary in this uh, episode, but they are fun. Okay. In my defense. Bring it on. So yeah, so basically I'm just I'm just enjoying the pure anarchy of this episode. I'm just doing whatever, <laughs> whatever the fuck I want. 
Okay. Organism number one, the largest living organism in the world. Oh. Guess what it is? Is it me? No. <laughs> I don't know. I've been in lockdown for a month. <laughs> You've been I've on, on some weight. <laughs> it is a fungus. Oh. Um, it's an Armillaria ostone found in Oregon, uh, which occupies a surface of 10 square kilometers. That's a that's a that's a big ass fungus. Yeah. Um unfortunately it's not a giant mushroom. <laughs> that is a shame. Yeah. Because I'd like to jump on it. Yeah. And uh, presumably go sprying. I'd like to cut it up and eat it. <sighs> can you imagine? The yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. It's senseless slaughter of an innocent mushroom. <laughs> I think I've taken after my dad. <laughs> One time he phoned me and went, I was looking at the jasmine flowers blooming in the garden and thinking, how can I cook them? <laughs> <laughs> so this, this Arilaria is a sprawl of tiny mushrooms and they're all connected underground through a rhizome, uh, which is a large network of uh, filaments. How do they know it's all the same beast? Well, they sample DNA in various parts of the fungus uh, and they know that all mushrooms are the same. They're like connected clones. Wow. They also picked bits from different parts of the fungus to see if they fused in a lab, which I think is quite fun. Yeah. Uh, and and they, they fuse, so they are related. Wow. A really, a really cool thing about this is also that if you look at an aerial view of forests where the Amilaria is uh, thriving, you see what essentially are zombie trees because the Amilaria uh, goes into the tree so it attacks the tree from inside and lives on the resources of the tree right and so the tree is essentially dead but stands up there just yeah um so that's really cool yeah just saying also fun fact if you take this to be a giant organism then there is a chance that mushrooms grown in farms could also be considered one such organism hmm so a whole farm could be one organism. Wow. So you might be eating, on a regular basis, stuff that comes from big-ass organisms. <laughs> That's fun. But some say, why do organisms have to be connected in order to be all one giant beast? Oh. Let's take bananas. Okay. Fun fact, most bananas in existence today are clones. Okay. It all started in the 1950s when the United Fruit Company, which is an American corporation, essentially overtook the whole of Guatemala for the purpose of producing bananas. They basically ran the place. They put railways down. The whole country was a massive banana factory. The kind of banana produced at the time was called the Gros Michel and was very different from current bananas, which are called the Cavendish bananas. So the Gros Michel were stocky and had quite big, um, visible seeds. Um, they were also sweeter than the Cavendish. People say they were tastier. And they worked out that the most efficient way of producing bananas was by cloning. So you'd get offcuts from a plant and plant it, um, plant them elsewhere. So this, this produces massive monoculture. And it became clear that monocultures are prone to facilitating the spread of disease, right? Right. 
And so they developed this new kind of banana, the Cavendish, that was more resistant to disease, not as tasty, but it was also very good in terms of uh, transportation because it was easy to transport. And this banana eventually supplanted the Gros Michel. So any, basically all bananas that are produced in the world for export nowadays are Cavendish. Wow. Yeah. There are some pockets of Gros Michel, but they're very hard to find. Mm Mm-hmm. Were the earlier ones easier to slip over on? Because <laughs> you see that a lot in cartoons. But I've That's never right. seen anyone do that. So here's my theory. I think the Gros Michel uh, banana was lethal. <laughs> and uh, part of the reason why it was supplanted was because it just to, uh, to slow down the death rate, people are slipping over on those bananas. I mean, it's funny in cartoons, but imagine doing it for real. Oh, wow. Terrible. Imagine doing most things that they do in cartoons for real. Hmm. Oh, good. So going back on whether the bananas are one giant organism, that's unclear because, I mean, they do reproduce, but they don't have the unity or invisibility thing. So they they do not act as a whole. If you divide them up, they are still alive. Because, yeah. like, if you separate plants, they're still alive. So it depends on, on kind of what theory you're using there. Other interesting case, last one, Earth. Okay. <laughs> Curveball <laughs> there. This scientist called Lynn Margulis at some point proposed what has been called the Gaia hypothesis, by which the Earth as a whole is a living organism. Which kind of makes sense because it has self-regulating properties and the life it hosts is an integral part of it being alive. Okay. One consequence of this approach, according to an astrobiologist named David Greenspoon, is that there is no such thing as a planet that has a little bit of life. Because life on a planet and the life of the planet evolve together then a planet is either entirely alive or there is no chance of life whatsoever. And this is something that is actually falsifiable. So if you found, for instance, a patch of bacteria on Mars, then it would be a refutation of this theory, right? Because the whole of Mars is not alive. But Greenspoon thinks that that's just not possible because the two things evolve together. And, you know, you can think about the fact that a lot of Earth's features are stable over time. They're often mediated by living organisms. This is true of the oxygen in the atmosphere, for instance, that is influenced by the respiration of living organisms. A lot of the properties that make life possible are also influenced by life on Earth. Fun fact, some of the things that came out of Gaia hypothesis are actually used in astrobiology. So, for instance, looking at markers in a planet's atmosphere is one of the ways to work out whether a planet is a good candidate for hosting life. Wonder Cupboard. So going back to our friends, our enemies, our frenemies, (laughs) the viruses. The problem with viruses, I mean, there are many problems with viruses. The problem that we're looking at now um, is that they need cells in order to perform those activities that allow them to behave like living things. So viruses have different shapes and sizes. 
but essentially they are made of genetic information in the form of a single or double strand of DNA or RNA, which is the lowly cousin of the DNA. This material is covered by a shell called the capsid and one or more types of protein. So it's a very essential entity, if you think about it. It's very minimal. When it's it's outside- literally just what it needs and nothing else to, to, to do what it does. Yeah, it's barely what it needs even, mm. right? So when it's outside the cell, it's called the virion. Um, I didn't know that. That's fun. Mm. Then when it infects the cell, it uses the cell's organs, um, the ribosomes, in order to make copies of whatever nucleic acid the virus contains. So DNA viruses use them to make copies of their DNA strands, RNA of RNA, and so on and so forth. And then all these tiny copies kind of burst out of the cell. So it's kind of an alien situation, right? Um, And they become variants themselves. And the cycle recommences. So it's a bit like a clown gets into a small car, (laughs) drives somewhere using the facilities of the car, and then 10 clowns get out. Yes! There you go. (laughs) The circus metaphor. (laughs) Yeah, so virus in terms of metabolism and reproduction, are dependent on cells. Mm. So does this mean that they're alive or not? What is it? One observation that has been made is that viruses are too often considered dead because they are conflated with virions, so with the form that is just free-floating around and that can't reproduce on its own. And that perhaps a better way to think about them would be to see the combination of virus plus the cell as a living thing. Okay. And the proposed name for this is Virocell. Oh, okay. Catchy? Yeah. No. Yeah, it works. In fact, as a result of the symbiosis, the cell might die. It doesn't always, but sometimes it dies. Well, you know, the virus kind of makes itself comfortable, puts up a couple of curtains. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know. And even if the cell keeps living, sometimes the genetic material of the cell and virus combine together. And, you know, I was saying the virus makes itself comfortable. It really, really does. Like, sometimes viruses create their own tiny organs that they need, and they just kind of leave it there to float amongst the the organelles of of the cell. That's horrifying. Yeah, it's super cool, though. It is cool. So, yeah, so it's like, you know, it's like having a squatter that doesn't only live in your house, they also start DIYing their own <laughs> fucking IKEA hacks. <laughs> and they probably cook really smelly food all the time. And mm. not the good kind of smelly food, because no. I'm all about smelly food. <laughs> no, 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 the bad kind. <laughs> so, in this sense, viruses go from being dead to being alive, depending on the phase in the life cycle or in their cycle cycle, because <laughs> we, we can't. Um, it's difficult to, to talk about it otherwise. This is also interesting in terms of reframing life as a concept, right? So rather than thinking that organisms can be either alive or not, we can think of them as going from being non-alive to alive. And mind you, that doesn't mean saying a horse is alive until it's dead. It's more like variants are not alive. They're just like inert their potential Mm -hmm. life until they become alive Mm -hmm. 
you can think about this in, in evolutionary terms as well. So viruses do evolve. That We have no, no doubt about that. But they have this very interesting lineage that is not fully understood yet. So one theory on the origin of viruses is that they used to be in cells. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, wearing fedoras and complaining about women on the internet. Pretty much. <laughs> and then they went out of cells, becoming probably trolls. Yeah. I would say. I don't know. What's an incel outside the cell? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Uncomfortable. <laughs> so, yeah, so viruses were these bits of nucleic acids that were just kind of outside of the cells. And some supporters of the theory that viruses are alive would tell you that it seems like a bit like a dodgy thing to think about. Like, so they used to be alive and now they are not. Unclear what that means. Also, viruses have appeared at different times in evolutionary history. So they have many origins. A fascinating hypothesis is that viruses essentially co-evolved with life itself. So the idea is that something like viruses existed before cells existed as some kind of free-floating molecule. At this point, you just had open systems that exchanged information rather casually with some kind of translation system that took information from each protogenome and moved it to another protogenome and they recombined and, and it was this big soup of stuff. Um, and over time, these casual arrangements somehow became cells creating cell-based life forms. It's like these communal translation mechanisms were basically fenced off inside of cells, right? So in this sense, viruses are not dependent on cells themselves. They are dependent on the structures inside cells, like the ribosomes, that nowadays are inconveniently located out of reach for them. So So it's not their fault. It's not their fault. They just they they end up in a cell and then oh, ah, this takes me back. <laughs> I reckon I could start using some of these. Oh yeah, and I just made a copy of myself. <laughs> Very nice. What else is around here? <laughs> oh, set up a little uh, organ. Yeah. I mean that that sounds like the worst roommate ever. So mm. that's that's, yeah. that's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah. So. We have confused ourselves with all this. I have one last point, which I am labeling the obligatory constructionist view. <laughs> um, uh, the OCV, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Can't get away without it. People have been asking themselves, what's going on here from a human point of view? After all, we are the ones naming categories and debating what's alive and what is not. Is it possible maybe that we are a tiny bit biased against organisms that are mostly, let's face it, dicks to us? <laughs> and also they just don't share anything with us. You know, we might have the temptation to say, well, we are alive, so we are the model for life. And look how awesome we are. So mm. if you look like us, you're alive. Otherwise, you're not. That's certainly something we're very good at doing in society. Yes, exactly. It's, it is an instinct there, right? 
if you look like me, you're a good manager. Yes, yes, absolutely. Or, you know, you can go even further than that and say, you know, all of this is a convention. Who cares? Let's go get drunk at the faculty bar. And, and this, is, this is true. All of this is true. But a couple of observations. First of all, just because we create a category, it doesn't mean it's arbitrary or not real. We create that category in a specific way. Let's say, in this case, we divide the world in alive and not alive, not taller than 3.2 centimeters and shorter than 3.2 centimeters. There's, there's a meaning in that mm. distinction, right? Even if you want to be uber cynical and say that there are no natural kinds and all distinctions are conventional, you have to accept that some distinctions have purpose and others do not. And that leaves space for a lot of debate already on what kind of distinctions should be made and how they should be made and so on and so forth. Also, just putting it out there, there's nothing wrong with creating something and believing in it. We do it all the time. We cry when the main character of a movie suffers. We know it's made up. We know they're actors, but we participate in that game. We fall in love and decide that our couple, throuple, or otherwise shaped network of lovers is worthy of our time and attention. We trade in money. <laughs> like, if that's not made up, I don't know what is. So, yeah. So, definitions are difficult, but it's worth working on them. And when in doubt, ask your local philosopher. <laughs> Shall we do the references? Let's do the references. And now, the references. So, as ever, a list of references, a complete list of references, will be uploaded on the website by the website fairies. <laughs> that is my understanding. But some sources that I would like to acknowledge are an article called The Nature of Life by Mark A. Bedow. I hope that's how their name is pronounced which is quite an interesting overview of different ways of conceptualizing life. If you're interested in David Greenspoon's idea about how the Gaia hypothesis might actually be accurate, the article that I took this content from is It's Time to Take the Gaia Hypothesis Seriously. Finally, if you want something a bit more technical on viruses, the two sort of experimental hypotheses that I referenced towards the end come from these two papers. One is by Patrick Fauter, and the title is To Be or Not to Be Alive, How Recent Discoveries Challenge the Traditional Definitions of Viruses and Life. And by Savio Torres de Farias, Sohan Gita, and Francisco Prodoshimi, Viruses as a Survival Strategy in the Armory of Life. Uh, this came out in 2019, so it's very recent and very up-to-date in terms of science. This is also quite an interesting group of people because they are scientists and philosophers. Mm. Ah. See? Sometimes. <laughs> Finally, if you're interested in the vaguely esoteric bit about the fact that we make things up and then we believe in them, there's a book that you can read <laughs> if you want which is called On the Modern Cult of Factish Gods. 
by Bruno Latour, who is a philosopher, a French philosopher, and staple in the SES field. And also, (laughs) (laughs) the source of one of our wedding readings. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Because we're nothing if not on brand. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the other one was Douglas Adams. Yeah. That's nice. So what have we learned today? Today we've learned that if there's a virus you want to study, your poster should say, wanted, dead or alive. (laughs) Wonder Cupboard.